Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to the Group Chat Podcast. It's Zara King here, joined in studio with Gavin and Richard, as usual. Hello. That was a very hello. cheery hello. Yeah, it was. I was sort of I was kind of going between the formal and the informal. How are you guys? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> happy Love Day. Happy Love Day. Happy uh, Love Day. Love happy day. Galentine's Day. Happy Galentine's. Mm. Um, I heard Leo Varadkar wishing Mary Lee MacDonald a happy Valentine's Day in the Dole about an hour ago. <laughs> it's so incredibly bizarre. When, when the coalition that nobody expected materialises in like Easter 2025, you'll know where the seeds were sown. Yeah, they've, always, they've always maintained, and it is very true, that they have a good like interpersonal relationship, Leo Varadkar and really? Mary Lee MacDonald. So mm. people, a lot of people might not know that. People might I think it's all very, a lot of animosity between you know the leaders of the biggest parties, but no, they get yeah. on quite well. They're quite good pals. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call I wouldn't go that far. Pals, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you're like, whoa, <laughs> not pals. No, they're, they're perfectly civil. Yeah. Which I find a lot, a, a, lot of, cards, a lot of politicians, to be fair, actually behind the scenes are even the ones who you might see in the Tonight Show tearing strips off each other routinely would share a taxi back to Leinster House afterwards and then go for a nightcap together if they're both in, up in a hotel or something. There you so. go. That's good behind the yeah. scenes chat. Um, so look, we're going to get straight into it guys because um, there has been a letter written, Gavin, you're going to talk us through this letter, a combined letter between Ireland and Spain to the President of the European Commission. What is this all about? So what this effectively amounts to is that Ireland and Spain want to start the process formally of uh, EU-Israeli trade relations being completely suspended. Uh, now, that's a very long-winded sentence, but basically what it amounts to is that there is an association agreement, technical term, between the EU and Israel that accounts for free trade, among a few other things, and that carries a human rights obligation in it, where one or other of the parties can suspend the deal if they believe that the other is not in compliance with its human rights obligations. Mm. Ireland and Spain say... Prima facie, on the case of it, there is a serious case to answer. Therefore, we would like the European Commission to go away and establish whether they believe that's true. Um, what happens next? Nobody's totally sure because this was put to a European Commission spokesperson today. And they were like, this is kind of uncharted territory for us. So we actually don't know what the next step is. Do we now start a review based on two countries asking for it? Do we need unanimity from the member states to even broach it? How do we go about it? But basically, the long and the short of it is, is that Ireland and Spain are now formally trying to start the process of breaking off trade relations. What's in the letter? It's a very significant letter. I mean, we, we're going to go into whether or not it'll have any impact, why it's taken so long to get there. Mm-hmm. But if you take, for example, the fact that this is about the EU-Israel Association Agreement, right? Um, Ireland, or the EU, I should say, is Israel's biggest trading partner. And it is by quite some margin, right? Mm-hmm. So the trade between Israel and the EU uh, is worth some 46.8 billion euro, Uh 28.8% of trading goods from Israel to the EU. 31% of Israel's imports came from the EU, about a quarter of its exports going to the EU as well. So this is a huge deal for Israel, right? Um, and for there to be a question mark over it is quite significant. And it is a significant step taken by the Irish and Spanish governments to do this. Now, the letter itself, of course, it points a lot to what we've seen in recent days in terms of Rafa in particular. That seems to be... In many ways, the straw that's broken the camel's back for a lot of international 
observers and governments around the world, including the US government, that Joe Biden has been saying, look, you should not go anywhere mm. into Rafa. There is a complete catastrophe there. I mean, comparisons have been made by Irish politicians to Srebrenica uh, in terms of what happened there and what could happen in Rafa, the bombardment of Rafa, where there's 1.4 million people sheltering. Um, I think the population of Rafa has increased by, I think, seven or eightfold mm. uh, since people have been forced there. It was, the last, it was the last safe nowhere zone that go. was there. And now it is not very much not a safe zone. So uh, Leo Varadkar and Pedro Sanchez, the Prime Minister of Spain, uh, it's just to read from the last, from the end of the letter. Uh, we must not lose sight of the... Pre- Actually, sorry, I'm going to go back a bit further there. Uh, just in terms of we ask that the Commission undertake an urgent review. Now, that's something which people are probably going to get roll their eyes at because there's been so many reviews uh, that have been mm. called for in terms of the human rights situation, the ICJ situation with Israel as well. Uh, but they were calling for an urgent review of whether Israel is complying with its obligations under the association agreement, uh, which makes respect for human rights and democratic principles an essential element of the relationship. And if the European Commission considers that um, Israel is in breach of this, that it proposes appropriate measures to the Council to consider. So as Gavin says there, this does call into question the trading agreement for Israel's biggest trading partner. And if you're mm. looking for sanctions, which is what a lot of people around the world have been calling for mm. in this four-month conflict to date, well, this is a pretty significant one if it does go so far. And whether or not this has any impact is probably the biggest question. Th- that's but actually if it goes that far. That's probably the salient question because as I said, so nobody knows exactly what you do next. And whenever um, Ireland's been asked about this before, this has been raised in the doll as far back as uh, early November. I think Holly Cairns was the first person in early November to say, this deal requires human rights obligations. We should invoke this deal. Every time it's been raised with anyone senior in the Irish front, Leo Varadkar, Micheál Martin, anyone else, they say, we need unanimity. There's a couple of European states, particularly the likes of Germany because of its historical uh, links, um, are, are very much on the side of Israel in this conflict and would, would need really, really overwhelming evidence before they were going to take a measure as big as this. Mm. So every time until now, it's kind of always been, oh, well, there's no unanimity. Still don't know whether there might be unanimity, but Ireland's stance has always up to this point sort of been, well, we should do this anyway. So now the European Commission has to decide whether two member states asking for this review is enough to formally get the ball rolling or whether it wants to see more wind blowing in that direction before it makes a move. So in one way, you could say there's there's a European Council summit in, in the middle of March, just after Patrick's Day. That ostensibly could be the point at which the European ministers are presented with the evidence and they say, right, suspend trade. Or it might be the point at which the European Commission says, do you think we should go looking at the evidence now and think about it? At which point you're five months in. Well, I was just going to say, can I just say that the middle of March is how many weeks away? It's four weeks away, I suppose. Yeah, it's about, it's, like, it's, based, it's the, f- I think it's actually, the, the, the summit is five weeks away, I think. Like the crisis in Rafa is happening right now. Mm. Yeah, you know, and it's happening day by day. Like four weeks time is just not good enough. And I think it's important to, I know you've touched on a load of reasons why maybe Ireland didn't get to this point until now, but I still think that there's somewhere between asking the question, is life better than never? Or is late just in this instance, yeah. considering what's happening in Rafa right now, actually, Richard, just too bloody late? Yeah, and like that is something we've been asking and we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks in this podcast. I mean, drawing the comparisons between what Micheál Martin uh, described as genocide in Ukraine versus how reticent the Irish government has been to use that sort of terminology around what's happened in Gaza, despite the fact, of course, that we've seen colossal civilian casualties, uh, the invasions of multiple hospital campuses, including the Nasser uh, hospital complex currently, which has been ordered to be evacuated. That is the last biggest remaining hospital there. Thousands of people have been sheltering there and Israel is uh, urging everybody to get out there. And obviously what's happened before, we've seen it at Al-Shifa and previous other hospitals, is what when they make these orders, they go in there and there's an element of fighting and it really displaces some of the most vulnerable people in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And everyone in Gaza is vulnerable at this point mm-hmm. in time. So we've had multiple elements of 
of the Irish government sticking its neck a little bit above the parapet, I think you want to say, in terms of the international yeah. community and saying, we don't consider what's happening here um, you know, acceptable. Israel is going too far. Israel is blinded by rage is a term which Leo Varadkar has used multiple times now. Mm -hmm. I think probably one of the strongest words that we've heard from the Irish government to date came yesterday uh, from Simon mm -hmm. Coveney. I think we do have a clip of him, um, but it is something which did catch international attention. It is not acceptable effectively to behave like a monster. To, to defeat a monster, uh, which is what Israel uh, are, are now doing. Uh, uh, and uh, Ireland has been using uh, its voice internationally to try to build consensus within the European Union uh, to stop this madness. Uh, and we need to continue to do that forcefully, in my view. It's very clear that uh, civilians in Gaza have nowhere to go. Uh, many of them have been displaced multiple times. Uh, the idea that you can simply continue to move them on uh, when most of the Gaza Strip has now been destroyed, uh, is, is not consistent with international humanitarian law, with the obligations of parties at war. What we do, need to do is to work with, in particular with the countries that uh, Israel would normally listen to, uh, to try to, to push for a sane and sensible uh, ceasefire uh, that, yes, protects Israel's security and their people, uh, but brings an end to to what has become a, a slaughter of innocent civilians. So those are the words coming from the Irish government. And I, I posted that up yesterday and everybody was like, well, big whoop. Mm. It's um, very late in the day for the Irish government to be saying these things. And people were making the point that it's so just it's just a light and day situation, night and day situation in comparison to Russia and Ukraine versus mm. Israel and Gaza. And there's a feeling that people here in Ireland don't believe our government is doing the right thing or going far enough in it because it wants to please or keep on side with the EU and the United States. And they don't want to do anything which would jeopardise, um, you know, the good stead that we're in in Washington or in Brussels because we're the good little mm. Europeans and we're the good trade uh, transatlantic trade partners. Whereas condemning Russia, um, rightly, I suppose, for whatever happened in Ukraine, was seen as that's the right thing to do by Brussels and by Washington. But going against the grain is something which the Irish government is reticent to do. But this is, I mean, people will say that this isn't even still enough. And there, that, that, that remains an open question. But when it comes to whether or not the rest of the world and the West in particular can have normalised relations with the state of Israel. This is the first time we've seen any country on this level uh, in terms of Ireland and Spain really raising a question mark as to whether or not that business as usual can ever continue. To I, I think the point that he makes about, you know, Ireland needs to work with countries that Israel normally listens to. Mm. Again, I kind of feel like why didn't that happen a couple of months ago? I mean, it's sort of stating the obvious in a lot of ways. It is in a way, but also it, it's sort of preempting that when we have the row in three or four weeks time about Leo Varadkar going to the White House and the usual uh, barrage of Irish politicians descending on capitals around the world that he's saying well that, that's part of the reason that you go that you go to go and shake hands and speak to people that oh, yeah, you don't and, necessarily and agree that. with and, and Michal Martin by the way was in Washington last week making this point to senior members of, of the Houses of Congress and the mm -hmm. like so th this is part of the thing Richard makes a very good interesting point about whether talking is actually doing mm. and this is kind of part of the, the whole nefarious art of diplomacy is that oftentimes not always but oftentimes talking is doing um, Leo Varadkar made a, an interesting contribution in the Dáil this afternoon where he, he tried to outline what he said were seven um, specific concrete things that Ireland had done in the cause of the Palestinians in the last four months uh, we were one of the first in the world to call for a ceasefire that's talking oh, but one of the first things we did uh, we increased our aid budget for the UN and for UNRWA uh, which obviously is a, a material thing mm. uh, we used our EU and UN position to support the Palestinian people that's 
it's talking, but maybe maybe it's doing too. Uh, we sought sanctions against violent settlers in the West Bank. Um, he did, by the way, say that if we can't get EU unanimity on that, that Ireland is prepared to to go it alone or do side deals with some member states rather than waiting for the whole EU. That's okay, quite significant, that's significant, I think. Yeah. Uh, we intervened in the ICC case. Now, not the ICJ South Africa case, but a separate parallel case at the International Criminal Court on Israel's uh, illegal occupations of some Palestinian territories. And the Attorney General is flying to, to The Hague in a couple of weeks to, to speak on that. Yeah, that's kind uh, of underrated, actually. Yeah. We've joined with Spain today. Uh, to call for the suspension of the trade deal and we are in discussion with other EU states about recognising Palestine. Now, that last one would be really material were it come to pass, but it is talking. Uh, now, I'm not, I, I'm not, we're not here to cast judgment on whether talking is doing, but it, it's, it's one for our audience to, to decide in their own minds that actually, in cases like this, is diplomacy, is, is talking doing or do people want concrete stuff like recognising statehood like suspending trade deals like cutting aid like suspending ambassadors the likes you know some, sometimes you don't have to go that far sometimes you do Wasn't there an opportunity when you were there on, on the trip when were you in the Middle East? First week of September about a month September. before I remember at that time there was concern that you know from the Israeli side that Ireland was about to recognise the state of Palestine at that time Yes uh, There was Long a lot Before October 7th Yeah there was a lot of concern that was about four weeks before October the 7th and the Israeli foreign ministry officials as I understand it were asking a lot of questions about why was he coming what was the specific point of him coming and moreover why were there so many media following him as well mm. and they were quite unnerved about the idea that while he was in Ramallah that he might suddenly announce that Ireland was formally recognising Palestine as a state. Um, Ireland has always said until a couple of weeks ago that it would only ever really do that once there was EU unanimity. But in the last couple of weeks, because we know that's hard to come by, now Leo Varadkar has started to tout the idea of maybe doing it as part of a minority bloc within the EU if you can't get everyone to do it. Significantly enough, David Cameron, the UK Foreign Secretary, has been one of the people who's been talking about recognising a Palestinian state and that is one of the off-the-record briefings that comes out of the US government now is that one of their ways of looking forward from how do we move this out of this state of crisis is that the United States might go so, so far as to recognise a Palestinian state, which would be a complete about turn. Mm. Uh, and given totally that's been turn. something which they have not even considered getting near uh, for the longest time. But again, you, you kind of made the point, Zara, that nobody's, like Israel isn't listening to anything which is happening around the world. It's not listening to the US, it's not listening to the UK, it's not listening to the EU. Actually, not a hope in hell it's going to listen to the EU, I would say, to be honest, if mm -hmm. that's, that's my honest assessment of it. But again, as in terms of what actually can come of this, there is serious question mark as to whether anything will actually happen in terms of the EU response to Ireland and Spain's request for this urgent review because there has not been EU unanimity mm. in a response to this. I remember when this all started, when this all kicked off, do we remember Ursula von der Leyen was being sledged mm. uh, from all corners uh, for the response uh, to what was happening in Gaza, uh, very much siding with Israel uh, in pursuing Hamas uh, and not really sort of seeing any sort of you know, any of the downsides of the civilian cost of what was happening in Gaza, of the blockade and not freeing aid into the into the, into the region as well. And I just want to talk to you about that civilian cost because um, one of the things that happened obviously in the last couple of days between Sunday night into Monday was that covert operation by the IDF to rescue the two hostages. And, you know, for people to note and remember that that operation cost the lives of 50 Palestinians, including women and children according to the health ministry in Gaza. So, you know, as much as there were pictures of reunions and, and there's no doubt that Israelis have suffered from the attack on October 7th, nobody is denying that. Um, but the reality is for 50 Palestinian families, they lost loved ones in that one single operation. 
And that was, yeah, that was one of, the, one of the most significant um, pulverized, they pulverized large parts of Rafa mm-hmm. uh, as a distraction or a diversion to allow the special forces to go in there and rescue two people. Now, there were question marks actually raised in some corners of the Israeli military mm-hmm. about, you know, the justification for that, that you go and do this and you kill at least 50 people, as you say, Zara. To just rescue two people, that it was only two hostages who were rescued there was something that prompted a few question marks from some of the critical elements of the Israeli uh, uh, media. Uh, there is very, very few um, examples now in recent weeks of hostages being freed by military force from Gaza. In fact, I think it's, it's got to be less than 10 in total mm. in the last mm. month or so who have been freed by virtue of the IDF going in there and hauling people out. So. The tactics, I don't see anybody around the world can possibly say this is working. No. You're starting to get, again, more off-the-record briefings. But the West, you know, it can't just continue to say, we're really unhappy with how Benjamin Netanyahu is doing this while actually not taking any action. So today's move is significant. Full significance of it is only going to play out over the next number of weeks. One of the things, that, so I've been working on the Gaza story in-house for the last couple of days, so I'm seeing a lot of the pictures coming in from the wire service. And one of the things that was, you know, like, I mean, it's hard to still continue to say that you're shocked because so much of this is a horror situation that's unfolding. But, you know, even looking at, as you said, Richard, the situation, Rafa and as Simon Coveney mentioned, people have been displaced so many times. And you now have a situation where people have set up a temporary refugee camp in a graveyard. And so they're camped out in a graveyard because they have no other place to go. It's the only sort of land space they have because as you said, Richard, is it 1.4 million people now it's, packed it's, in? It's actually Rafa. hard to get a full yeah. estimate. Yeah. It's anywhere from 1.4 to 1.5 or even 1.3 to 1.5 yeah. is kind of what you're seeing, which is a huge margin of error of 200,000 people. On in, a small plot of land, effectively. Uh, which oh, uh, no. Some people have compared to the size, the footprint of it is the size of Heathrow Airport. So it's a very, okay. very small space of area for mm-hmm. a lot of people to be crammed into. So they're living there in this graveyard and, you know, the guy was, one of the, the men in the piece was talking about the fact that, you know, at night they go to bed and they're so nervous. Obviously they're scared of the airstrikes and they're scared of the situation, but they also have that level of anxiety that they're sleeping among their dead now as well. And, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu will say, oh, well, we, we've told people to clear out of Rafa. Where are they supposed to go? You've literally backed people down into a corner. You've destroyed homes, shelters, you said Richard, hospitals. There's literally no place left to go. Mm. And this notion that like, oh, well, we've given you prior warning to clear the area. It's ridiculous. Uh, and it feels like we we end up saying some of the same stuff every time we talk about the humanitarian part of this. But like, it does kind of bear repeating that, that just how gruesome this is and how jaded people might get about seeing what they're seeing or that they might mm-hmm. consider it's now to be par for the course. Like I was sitting in the studio at 12.30 because I was doing a live piece in studio for the Bulletin and just before it um, Barbara, our colleague, was doing today's um, report on, on what's been going on and her piece opened with um, newborns in the one remaining working hospital yeah. in Rafa uh, in the neonatal unit multiple small children sharing those little cribs sharing those Perspex boxes in some cases sharing ICU units and incubators like multiple, multiple babies and like that should never be normal. Like that, that I saw that and I, I momentarily was like struggling to breathe for just a split second. Mm. Like we shouldn't lose sight of just how like abysmally dire that is and wonder how it was allowed to get there and what we could do to stop it. Now, much has been made of the age of Joe Biden over the last couple of days. There's been a lot of uh, discussion, Gavin, on whether or not Joe Biden is vibrant enough, energetic enough to face into four more years. Yeah. He wants it. He definitely feels like he can do it. But um, there's a lot of doubt. Can we just point. start where, where this came from, though? It started from that report into the classified documents yeah. in which Robert Herr, who is the special counsel, we didn't. this wasn't in time for us to do it last week. But that report, while it should have been 
This is a great moment for Joe Biden. He's been cleared. He's been exonerated yeah. effectively of the classified documents matter. Exonerated but, but with the reason he giant was asterisk. But the yeah. reason is that he was described by uh, Mr. Her as having significant uh, memory lapses through the time he was interviewed. Uh, and he said that it would be very difficult for Mr. Biden uh, to face a jury over the, the documents matter because he could present himself, as he said he did in the interviews, as a well-meaning elderly man mm. with a bad memory. Now, he also made some comments about uh, saying that Joe Biden couldn't remember the years that he was vice president of the United States and that he also had difficulty remember the, remembering the date uh, and the, 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 the year, effectively, uh, that his son, Bo Biden, um, died. Now, Joe Biden strongly refuted that and said that actually when he was asked that question, he thought to himself, it's actually none of your damn business. Yeah. Um, but this is devastating for Joe Biden. Mm. I genuinely think at this moment in time, Joe Biden is very much the outsider now facing into November's election. Um, and it is over this question mark of his age, his ability to, to, to do the job. A clear majority of Americans at this point in time don't think he's up to it. They think he's too old. They think he's too frail, I think is probably the word uh, more so than age because his chief competitor is also an old man. Mm. Um, be, he's, he, is, he will be 81, just turning 82 by the time of the election, Donald Trump will be uh, a relatively youthful 78 mm. at the time. They're the oldest pair of presidential candidates ever, surpassing their own record from four years ago, yeah. when together they were the oldest slate of candidates. But doesn't Donald Trump make quite a lot of mistakes and forgets things and has quite a lot of errors as well? But the difference being that sometimes Donald Trump says so many things that are off the wall that the errors and the gaffes sort of, they slip in or something, or maybe they're not yeah. detected as, as as plainly. I mean, perhaps to people, you know, obviously Joe Biden being the in place president, do they hold him to a higher standard? Is there greater expectation? Well, Joe, Joe Biden has put himself out there as being, I'm the presidential guy. The other guy is completely off the walls. Yeah. He is, you know, damaging America's democracy. He is tearing apart the seams of the country. And I'm the guy who's the responsible leader. And this isn't new. This was all telegraphed from years ago. Mm. People had concerns about Joe Biden's ability to do the job. They thought, he tried to position himself, or the party tried to position him as this transitional candidate. He would yeah. bring in a new generation of leaders, whether that be Kamala Harris. So, but, completely well, that, that was basically it. Was, he was there to unseat Trump so that he could basically be the mentor for Kamala Harris, who could then run this time and then bring in the whole yeah. new generation of 50-somethings. I know we've talked about this before, but I still think it's absolutely insane that Kamala Harris wasn't yeah. sort of brought through the ranks. Like, what happened there? Well, America I really like want her. to know. America they really like not like America her. doesn't like her. She doesn't poll well. Apparently, but does there's that a lot of bad between herself to... and Joe Biden as well. But, but genuinely, is there not a way or a strategy within the Democratic Party that they could, you know, work with Kamala Harris to make her more appealing to the public? Could they not have worked with her? To, like, let's be honest. Politics, a lot of the time, there's a lot of people working behind the scenes, you know, particularly in the United States, working on, you know, brand and reputation. And like, surely there could have been work done there to endear Kamala Harris I don't think so I don't think so really I don't think she's a very good politician okay I don't think she's good enough okay. I think the Democrats have and I'm going to be completely honest they have absolutely made a fool of themselves over the last three years of this they could have seen this coming the polling was there they never had any backup plan now they are staring down the barrel of losing the election partly because of Joe Biden's age his frailty his consistent lapses the press conference in which you decided to come back and hit back at the that was special 
Towns was It was all going so well yeah. until it wasn't going so well We're, on that front. Yeah. So for, for people who didn't yeah. follow the whole gist of that, so he called a press conference the night that the special counsel's report came out to basically refute the idea that he was some sort of dithering old dimwit yeah. and was able to read off an auto queue and then deal with some questions and put forward quite an assertive account of himself. And I then thought a, that the robust exchange with the Fox News correspondent was quite robust. Yeah. And he came out really well out of that. Like I, I almost... But, but only, only to the point of view that he was able to back back I mean he said my memory's so bad I let you speak which is the worst zinger it's a bit of a weird zinger but like I mean it could also be a self-owned like don't call on that guy but uh, where it went then off the rails then towards the end was that he was he was walking away from the podium and somebody shouted a Gaza themed question and he took the bait and went back and was asked about you know the, the dangers in Rafa and spoke about his engagements with the president uh, LCC of Mexico Mexico uh, Mexico notably not being the country that borders right next uh, Israel, Israel and Gaza. So, you know, it's it's not a great look. That was only a few days as well after he'd spoken about his engagements with President Mitterrand of Germany, thereby getting Emmanuel Macron's oh, name and nationality wrong. Um, and like you're right, Donald Trump has had similar like trail of snafus, but I, I suspect that in Donald Trump's case, because he spoke at such length and such regularity and produced so much other news lines, that they were a smaller proportion of people's concerns. Whereas Joe Biden yeah. trying to be presidential, being a little bit more reserved, not intervening on everything, when he does, it's a bigger percentage of his screw-ups and people pay attention then. And I think as well, it's interesting, you know, when you can see Joe Biden starting to lose his train of thought, it becomes really obvious. Like he's not as good at maybe rolling it through and covering it up. Like sometimes with Donald Trump, I think that the delivery, and that's an interesting point on delivery, is that, you know, he manages to kind of he manages to cover it up. I think that it's an interesting perspective from Joe Biden's point of view. You know, he can speak so fluently and then when he, sometimes when he hesitates, he stops for a second and he makes a zinger of a point. But actually, unfortunately for him, then when he loses his train of thought, it just really trails off. Also, you know, when he was in Balina and he came out on stage and everything, he had this little kind of walk run thing at the time yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was like oh okay is that, I don't is know, that as fast I just, as you move <laughs> well no but I, I thought that it was you know I think the walk run thing is a real deliberate look at me bouncing out here I don't know it just like it felt a bit like unnecessary I think if you've got fluid movement and a good gait you know the walk run is probably not necessary I don't know I think that was a real deliberate point to try and indicate that he was feeling very bouncy and very vibrant but mm-hmm. actually that like when you think about it, that was only what like nine months ago he slowed down movement wise a lot since then on yeah. observation you know yeah and it, like he's gone from f- four years ago in the election then being the, the Democrats only hope of, of unseating Donald Trump and he was the polls mm-hmm. sh- showed that to being the reason why Donald Trump is probably at this point in time a lot of things can happen between now and November he's probably the reason why Donald Trump is the favourite to be elected again all of that is to do with the age and frailty as well as you know completely turning his back on what people in Michigan like he's going to lose the state of Michigan as it stands because of Gaza and just not doing enough really for Mm. for people there Um, it's just it's there was backlash I saw John Stewart is back doing um, the Daily Show on Mondays Mm. so after a hiatus and he's gone off and done other things he's come back uh, which is often what people in the entertainment industry say you never do is return to your old job. Um, but he basically the, the 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 main focus of what he was talking about on the Daily Show was the comparative ages of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and uh, it was very critical. It was very damaging to Joe Biden once again. But the backlash from the Democrats to that just spoke to a real problem they have. They have a real problem with basically feeling that they have a divine right 
to win the election so, because they're not Donald, because so Joe Biden is what, not What Donald was the Trump. backlash? That basically it was ageist or that they just felt a bit bruised that he was pointing out their inability to find somebody better and younger? No, basically the, the backlash from Democrats was, was, why are you talking so much about his age when the other guy is a threat to democracy? Because the special counsel just painted him as a dithering old dimwit. That's it's, why. Eh? And it's not the American public's responsibility to be like, oh, we have to go and vote for this guy because he's not the other guy. Mm. Like, you have to be good in offering the best possible person for the job. And I just feel like they've just shut themselves off to criticism and they're staring down the barrel of a colossal and calamitous defeat, which they really should have been able to avoid. What does it say about America, a country that has such a large population, that the choice at the top of the ballot paper is so... The, you know, that, that, that it's not, there's not much selection that there. incumbency bias accounts for a hell of a lot. That, okay. that Trump basically remains the de facto leader of the Republicans because no one ever came along to unseat him. That Joe Biden remains the leader of the Democratic Party because no one else was able to come along and unseat him. And that empires tend to build around personalities and that's kind of the way it is. Um, I don't know whether I said this on the podcast the last time. Last March when I was there for the usual Shamrock reception thing, really struck by one thing that like Joe Biden we don't talk about it enough that Joe Biden basically got away with running in 2020 from his basement because we were still in the middle of the second wave of COVID restrictions and mm. um, he w- when he was doing his address um, at the Shamrock reception last March there were two uh, mounted microphones on the podium and Leo Varadkar was the first to speak and was able to stand with his you know his chin about 18 inches away from the, the microphones and be able to address the room perfectly well uh, with Joe Biden when he stood in after him not alone had to stand with the two microphones there but also needed to have another microphone right pursed up to his mouth because nobody would have been able to hear what he was saying unless he had amplification basically within an inch of his mouth mm. and that's a very superficial reading but also it goes to show the challenges that he might have when he's going coast to coast non-stop for six to eight weeks in September and October because the one thing we know from Donald Trump having done it twice already he's got the energy to do that there's a question as to whether Joe Biden does Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So the new children's hospital, uh, I feel like we've been talking about this for so long. <laughs> for so many years, we have actually. It'll basically not be you soon. We've been no. talking about it so long. Have you, I think all of us have always been in for a look. No, I've I haven't been, been there. In, I've been to one I'm of the, not, no. have you not actually? No, I went to one of the press events where they brought us in. You had to wear a hard hat and the steel toe mm. boots and everything. And Was there a selfie? Can we see it? Actually, yeah, there is. I'll, I'll okay. show it to you. Yeah, it's in my phone somewhere. <laughs> Every time we wear a hard hat, you have to take a selfie. It's mm, just such an Um like a very impressive building absolutely no doubt about it looks fantastic uh, always questions over that location you can barely get into James as it is at the moment but um, 
the cost of it, Gavin, and when is it actually going to open is sort of, I mean, I'm asking you a question that yeah. I really, you can't answer. As, as, as if I know, I, yeah, I can declare now, answer, I, I decree yeah. to the people of Ireland that yeah. the hospital is going to be open uh, between April and May of 2025. Uh, that is the government's now own timetable. Uh, basically, the builders say that they can now commit to handing over the, the structure of the building uh, on October the 29th of right. this year. So about nine months from now. And then after that, there's six months of what's called commissioning and transfer where a lot of these services and a lot of the physical kit and a lot of the staff from the existing children's hospitals in Crumlin, in Tala uh, and in Temple Street all have to be relocated. And that's about a six month teething in process. So if you add that on, you're looking at the end of April, start of May, when it's actually going to start um, treating patients. How much it will cost? By that point, it will have cost 2.24 billion euro. Uh, which, depending on currency fluctuations, makes it the most expensive uh, hospital in the history of humankind. And oh aren't we proud? I, I love that the, the government's thing was like, and it's not going to cost a single cent more uh, this Unless time around. Unless yeah. somebody challenges us in court. We're, we're, not, we're not committing any more money. But like, this has just been... It, it is thoroughly depressing from an infrastructural point of view. Yeah. Like I remember, I think it was back in the James O'Reilly days when he was the Minister for Health, the, mm. the big talk was that we'd have this open and ready for 100 years on for 2016 mm. and it would be a testament to how far Ireland has come as a country. Like 2016, he had been saying, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 2012, I think, was the original planning application. Oh, wow. or, yeah, for, for, that was when it was on the side of the matter. Right. So he said, open in 2016, centenary of uh, you know, cherishing all the children of the nation equally. This will be our great gesture that will have this world-class hospital. God. That was eight years ago. Eight years ago. And it's not finished yet. Granted, there's been planning issues and pandemics in the meantime, so you'll have that. Yeah, and I suppose in the meantime, like it's worth remembering as well, and perhaps that you've children, you've been probably in out of the children's hospitals, you know, times, I yeah. mean, like... The hospitals at the moment are not in the greatest of nature. They're, they're not in the greatest of shape. So like when, and this is what the government keeps hanging its hat on, that when this does get up and running, when it's open, when it's treating patients, that it will be a facility that we'll all be delightfully proud of because it will just, you know, wipe the floor with most other children's hospitals worldwide. And that, that might be the case. It's true. But it's kind of difficult not to look at the cost of it and kind of wonder how it managed to take so long. Parts of the latest um, upgrade in estimate some of them are, are, you know, unavoidable. So the last estimate of the 1.7 billion, that was arrived at in 2018. Since then, you've had the pandemic and the delay that that's caused, which then had a knock-on consequence in shortages of building material. And of course, there was the war in Ukraine, which has knocked on the price of other raw materials as well. So the whole mm. thing has gotten increased quite a bit. And nothing ever becomes cheaper if you wait longer to do it. The cheapest time to do something like that is always today. So the longer you delay it, the longer it's going to drag on. Mm. Um, interestingly, and this is something that Leo Varadkar pointed at in the Dáil on Tuesday. He said that the builders, BAM, who have been responsible for all of this, they reckon that it ought to have cost around six hundred million more than it has. Uh, but that there is an Sorry? there is an independent arbitrage. Basically, they have a contractual price where they agree to to produce a certain thing, and then if something happens kind of outside of what they'd pre-planned, BAM can make a claim and say, actually, well, based on on change in the spec or change in the design or change in circumstances, we need to up the price by this much. And they submitted somewhere in the region of six hundred million of disputed claims. And it was sent to an, an impartial kind of third party arbiter who governs these things. And only 2.7% of them were actually approved. So that would mean that if, if BAM actually were able to charge as much as they think they ought to have for the what they say is the changing design of the project along the way, it could have been adding another 550 million to it, which then would completely take... 550 million. Could, could be completely taking currency fluctuations out of the door. The only other hospital that rivals this in the world is, um, I forget the name, is it called the Royal Adelaide? There's a children's hospital in Melbourne, mm. I think, which costs 2.4 billion US dollars. Uh, so just, it literally depends on how, how, how the US dollar or the euro are doing in any given day. 
as to whether we've got the dearest hospital in the world. But I was just like, how have we, this teeny tiny little island country, ended up with the most expensive hospital? Because we in the are world. world class at delaying things and slightly mismanaging And who was making the changes or do you know the answer to that question? That's, di- that's disputed. Yeah, okay. So there, there is no universally agreed truth on that. So right. when it, we, the Children's, uh, the Oxford Health Committee has been having like marathon hearings on this over years and every time they have the development board that's responsible for the new hospital, they come in and say, oh well, you know, BAM has basically stiffed us on this or they allege or they claim that they had an agreement but BAM didn't supply enough staff to maintain their timeline or that there's been some change in spec or that something needed to be revised because of the standard of the work that was previously Mm -hmm. done. And then BAM will always come back either to the committee or in the press and say, well, actually, no, the spec was changed on us. Basically, the rug was pulled from underneath us and we had to go back, do a new design, work on new materials, designing a new plan and then bring that all in. That all takes time. That all costs money. That's the reason why it slipped. And there is no universally accepted middle ground in that. Each side blames the other. Mm. But one way or another, we've ended up with a hospital that's now costing five times more than it was supposed to mm. when it was on the original site. The originally, four. $450 million was the, the estimate when it was going to be in the matter. And it's now going to be five times that much when it's done. This is actually worse than Dermot Bannon running over on an episode of Room <laughs> to Improve, isn't it? Like, I mean... Dermot, we'd like a garden office. Oh, that's going to be an extra 200 grand. Like, it's, what's, the, what's the budget there, Dermot? That was 120. I think, you know, you, you'd nearly have to laugh or else you cry, but it's a very serious, like, it's a very serious situation to be in now where, I, like, I mean, you're saying October 29th. Will we all make a prediction? Do you want to take a guess? Do you think it'll be handed over October no, 29th? No, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to, but it's just like... Well, I'm going to say I don't think it'll be October 29th. I just don't think. Yeah, it will like be. we can, yeah, we can, we can do that. But it's just it, it it is a political millstone for the government because every time it comes up. But it's been multiple governments though. It's been successive governments well, that have kind of been the, kind of the same. same government. Government. They've all been oh, like you know. Um, and it doesn't matter. Like it's just it's such a reminder of just how poor you know this is a perfect design as to how not to build a children's hospital um, in terms of how long this has taken to get off the ground not even the right site initially there's still all the question marks as to whether the, the James' site actually makes any a lick of sense at all if it's a national children's mm-hmm. hospital and whether or not it's accessible uh, to people coming from across the country to mm-hmm. use its state of the art facilities in a place which is in you know fairly narrow streets around Dublin yeah. uh, in the old heart of Dublin um, so there's all those question marks but it just I, I, I think it's it must be Leo Varadkar must be thinking what have I ever done to deserve this because every single yeah. time it comes up it doesn't matter what's happening in the world or what's happening with the Irish economy and how many jobs are being created or how great the GDP is and all that sort of crack it's just a reminder that things just don't always go right in this country and we can't have you know the hospital we deserve as a country and we can't have the capital city that we need mm. as a people who are living here whether it be you know public transport projects and metro links and Lewis line connections mm. and Dart intercities and blah 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 and you know housing it's just such a, it, it's, it's probably the biggest white elephant um, reminder of how poor we are for a rich country at getting the things which we should be able to use our huge wealth our huge political influence to be able to do well and it's the biggest example of how things don't always go right. I've just checked, by the way, and I presumed uh, that October the 29th, when that was the date that was given, I just presumed that would be a weekend, that they're like, we'll hand it over on a Friday then and we can like, let the paint dry over mm. the weekend. It's a Tuesday. But that's how, how micromanaged the whole thing is, that they reckon they're going to be ha- able to hand it over on a specific Tuesday, uh, nine and a half months from now, which is... It's it's impressive uh, candor in your timing at the very least anyway. Whether it's Hubert or not, we'll see. But we could nearly set an alarm for the, the episode that we might be doing on Wednesday, October the 30th. Somebody put a, remi- Rory put a reminder into the calendar for that. Yeah. Wanna, we want to keep an eye on that. that Here's a, the one other um, thing which is slightly alarming about the hospital is that there, there are some who argue with some credibility 
that when you look at the capacity of the children's hospitals that this is replacing, so the ones in Talla, Crumlin mm. and Temple Street, although they'll still be in use as kind of satellite centres, so they'll still have some facilities. Yeah. Um, altogether right now, I think they've got something in the region of 310 or 320 surgical beds. The new children's hospital will have 360 which is an increase in capacity, but it's not a huge amount. Yeah, but you have to have staff to open those beds and that's been an ongoing staff in hospitals staff all to over the, the beds, country right now. Which, which, is a, which is a genuine and very sincere so, issue. Go on. Yeah, just on that point around staffing, Stephen Donnelly had a pop at people and saying it was all about a narrative that we didn't have enough doctors and the doctors are fleeing the country, which... But Stephen Donnelly's going to Australia for St. Patrick's Day, representing the government in Australia, which as we know, there are a lot of... Irish nurses and doctors in Australia mm. so you'd have to imagine that in, during his time there he might ask some of them would you fancy coming home to work mm. at home you'd have to imagine he would we've, do that We've got a lovely hospital that so. has loads of underground so. car parking and very poor public transport accessibility that you can come and work in if you're able to but a, a real aside from the question of whether we have the staff there's also a question as to whether the 360 beds that they're going to have is enough for the population going forward because don't forget this design was put in in the mid 2015 or 16 when they decided yeah. that this was going to be the site we're now eight years on the population has shot up by quite a bit in the meantime these things tend to be self-sustaining where the more people you bring in the more children they have and considering that the existing hospitals already routinely have people in their emergency departments on trolleys waiting for admission there's a question as to whether 360 beds is actually enough to keep pace with population or demand in health service that will be so like one to really set your alarm for is mid-May next year if that's when it's open if in fact there are still people on trolleys in the emergency departments in the new hospital and what, what sort of measure of the state that will be if we get there. Well, on that note, we'll let you go get a cup of tea. We'll see you after the break. <laughs> I actually can't believe that we're back here for the third week in a row talking about big cars, but you did say last week that you might have a bit of news for us. So we're circling back yeah. to coin a phrase to big cars. Briefly, because I actually haven't been working across it as such, but a lot of people will have seen reporting online. A lot of people are actually asking questions about what was described and put out on social media as Eamon Ryan's big plan to stop cars going into Dublin. Now, don't want to be the one to defend Eamon Ryan here, but A, it's not his plan. And C, and B, we skipped a letter there. Uh, <laughs> so B, irked is he by Eamon Ryan being mislabeled as the author of this? Yes, okay. but like the, the, the plan has been misreported by other media outlets and by people online who basically people saw it and probably not surprisingly they thought it was they, they said cars won't be allowed into Dublin city centre which is not what this says right the plan as has been put forward is to stop cars passing tr through Dublin city centre mm -hmm. but not stopping there they're going using Dublin city as a way to get from point A outside of Dublin city to point B also outside Dublin city mm -hmm. so using it as a you know, as a road, which is probably not what should be done. Tra traffic in Dublin is one of the worst in major cities in Europe, right? So people can, so under this plan, right, let's lay those fears straight off the bat, you will still be able to drive to Dublin, mm. right? Because some people, you know, live there. People so live, live there and work there. there. Yeah. It's the capital city. Yeah. Um, so that's um, that's just, just, just to put out there. Does no this other plan encourage people to go out to the M50 more then? Well, like, I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's to try and push people who are, like, because Dublin's streets um, and if the roads which pass through the city centre are too thronged. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to encourage more people to use public transport in an efficient way. So buses and whatnot should have more space to do it. I saw Guinness is actually one of the companies which is against this because it wants to use its historic route uh, along the Keys to get to Dublin Port. Now, 
actually somebody did the maths on this because it says oh it'll take too much so much longer for us to go outside of the city and then come back around to the port mm. it's actually five minutes in the there's, difference like, there's a tunnel plus, now yeah. so it's fine there's five minutes in the difference plus mm. you will have you know major he- heavy goods vehicles pushed out of Dublin city centre along the Keys which is probably a good thing for the mm. people who are living in the city so yeah that's the crack we'll have more detail on it I'm sure we're going to have lots more <laughs> no, we're again, not doing big car, car, weekly, big no, car again just so people know the facts of the matter people are not being stopped from commuting into Dublin in their car. Well, thank you for clearing that up, Richard. Much appreciated. It's a duty and a pleasure. Oh, we're not doing cars again next week. (laughs) (laughs) Until. (laughs) Um, Something I never thought I'd hear myself say, I actually stayed up all night to watch the Super Bowl. Good on you. I I didn't. And you, I was just, I texted the group and I thought you'd be the one person straight back in giving me some analytics, some stats. Mm. Not a word from you. A rare skip of the Super Bowl for me. You'd never skip the Super Bowl. Were you tired? Yeah, and I was up early for work the next morning and whatnot. And I was just like, I need to catch up and sleep. But... Great, great-ish game. It's the the outcome that America wanted, and has the most well, viewers of any telecast in the US since the moon landings, which is an extraordinary figure. You can't over, you know, explain how big that is. Mm. Like of all the telecasts that have happened since the moon landings, that was That's number one. Yeah, so like the most watched thing. Like, was yeah. it, is it that nineteen of the top twenty most watched things in US history are Super, are Super Bowls, oh. and the twentieth one is the moon landing? But when you consider that the Super Bowl itself is so dominant that it's got more viewers than any other. There's, there's well, there's two people that you could probably put did that you, down to. What do you think of Usher in the halftime show? Did you think oh, crap, I thought it was, that oh was Oh my God, was I completely oh, really disagree bad. with you. Whoa. I thought it was well off colour. The second half was pretty decent of his performance. The first half was... The Alicia Keys moment was disappointing. Could have been so much better. Yeah, I think like, we, yeah. we often fall... It's, it's, it's recency bias. Everybody thinks that the most recent Super Bowl halftime show was good, but this one was poor. Ah, no, I disagree. I, <laughs> I disagree. Think it was very well. Ludicrous. Like, it was that fantastic. Was great. That was a good well, bit. That was towards the end. Did you see Hannah Burner? She's a comedian, did a whole uh, bit where she was like, every millennial is now like just showing off that they can lip sync to the ludicrous thing. And I was like, oh, lol, so did that. <laughs> did, what, you, did, you, did you enjoy the Super Bowl watching experience? Yeah, I did actually. Do you know yeah. what? I never really understood American football before yeah. uh, Sunday in a sense that I used to watch it just for the halftime show, but I this is going to be so embarrassing to admit this but I actually I didn't get that the quarters were like 15 minutes that Mm. essentially you have 60 minutes of play Mm. yes but spread over about three and a half hours well that's what I'm saying so I didn't understand why it used to go on indefinitely I was like like, how do you not know when it's going to be over but now I obviously get it and that was the thing so I watched the first two quarters and I was like I'll stay for the halftime show and then I was totally invested in it and I was like I'm up now you stay stay up for overtime then as well so I fell asleep just after three and then I Same. woke, no, 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 I woke oh, at 10 woke to four just as it finished. I woke at 10 to four to see who won and then I fell back asleep again mm. and then editor Joe was ringing me at half seven off the hook and he was like, you sound like you're still in bed. And now, I was like, I am um, Joe. Now, I am. So obviously it, it is a big entertainment moment in its own right and it's a self-standing thing but I mean, like we, we're, we're dodging the big elephant in the room which is the reason why so many more people watched it this year. Yeah, we've talked years. about it many times so we I'm, don't yeah, need to do it again. But like, yeah, no, it is. It's Taylor Swift. And it this is. is it. We're drawing the line under it. The ta- yeah. This is the end of our Taylor Swift. Tournament. And big cars party. Big cars yeah. and Taylor Swift have had mm. like weeks and weeks. No, I mean, look, i not going to lie to you. I loved the cutaways of Taylor Swift. Totally enjoyed it herself. Blake Lively had the time of their lives. Um, it was great. Like, it's great. And, you know, it's it's filled headlines for days. And she seems really happy. I've said it before. Delighted for her. Delighted for him. They seem genuinely. There's a, they're having a great Valentine's there's Day. There's a really weird goldfish bowl element to their, like, their post-match celebrations where they're going out to whatever club or bar they were in and they and were, they were dancing to love stories. And, and, like, and you, you, we saw it through like 150 different smartphone lenses and angles because basically everybody around them 
beyond their circle of minders yeah. were shooting it. Like, how can Stop you... Stop filming people in nightclubs. But also, how can you just appreciate that as nightclubs an intimate moment? Nightclubs don't have nightclubs here anymore, do they? They're all well, closed. But like, still, don't stop, stop doing it, is yeah. the first thing. But what was captured in one of those shots is, uh, my key takeaway is that America has elected the wrong Kelsey. Uh, that Jason Kelsey <laughs> no! is the real America sweetheart um, and uh, his dancing... Uh, and general obliteration at the Super Bowl <laughs> after party for his brother. Yeah, uh, was really lovely. Was well, it true uh, that he, he he showed up consciously dressed as Zach Galifianakis' character from The Hangover? That like, he came in with the same T-shirt and the same satchel and like had deliberately cultivated a beard so that he looked like the main guy from The Hangover. Which I, I think I saw it done. I hope it wasn't some like AI Pope Coffee style deepfake because it was a brilliant likeness. He's if great. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, like yeah, I'm happy happy for Taylor Swift. Seemed very nice. Yeah. Uh, Jason Kelsey let himself down in some ways. Um, going after Andy Reid, one of the Travis greatest. Kelsey. Travis, Travis yeah, Kelsey, sorry, yeah. yes. Yeah, Travis, uh, Travis Roughing Kelsey, up his own boss. Roughing yeah. up his guy. That gaffer. was a bit unfortunate, wasn't it, really? It sort of did tint, taint, tainted slightly. But uh, they won. Anyway, it'll be Beyonce's live next week because she's back now, isn't she? Beyonce's got new music. Yeah. She used a Verizon commercial to announce her new music. Yeah. $7 million for 30 seconds of advertising at the Super Bowl. And they sold it every single time. money if you can get it, says you. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for for listening. We're out of time this week. Uh, Thank you to the team on the floor here in studio and in the gallery. And guys, we'll catch you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.